Nilquist listeners, I am so excited to have Frida El Agami and Ramia Mariel El Agami Khan on an upcoming episode of DealQuest. Um, they are sisters. Um, they are two of three sisters, I will point out, because they made sure that, you know, that, that, that I knew that, but uh, they didn't think I could handle all three of them at once. So <laughs> we had two of them on. Uh, talk to us about what our listeners are going to hear on your episode of DealQuest. So you'll first of all learn that the eldest sister always has to go first, so big sister first. Absolutely. Um, so thank you so much, Corey, for having us here. Um, so what we basically will be speaking about is our exposure to the family business world. So what we've experienced as a family business ourselves, um, how we feel um, that experience has informed our behavior as entrepreneurs, but then also the work that we have done with the family businesses across Europe and the Middle East. Um, and I think we will have a very interesting conversation about what deals mean in the field of family business. You will also learn more about our childhood dreams and how they panned out. <laughs> what it's like to about what it's like to work with the family, and also a very interesting discussion about the intersection of good governance and deal making abilities. Absolutely, and and I know we're also going to talk a little bit about uh, family offices and and family you know investing and things uh, like that, and the differences between what we're seeing in the U.S. and and in other parts of the world. Right, that's another topic. Absolutely. And I think there's a lot of things that we can learn from each other looking kind of at different geographical areas and how family businesses are behaving, as well as private wealth in general and where it's going and, and, and what the, the next wave of investment uh, seems to be going to. Love it. Well, folks, listen, definitely tune into this episode. Um, I mean, just the, the background and the life experience of, of these two amazing people and uh, all of the you know, content research and, 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 uh, and uh, experience they have in the family business area. I mean, this is gonna be a rich, rich episode. So check it out. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out of the box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Ramiro Mariel El Agami Khan is part of a second generation of her family business and fulfills the roles of CEO of Orbis Terra Media, editor-in-chief of Tharawat Magazine, and host of the podcast, The Family Business Voice, and Women in Family Business. She's dedicated to bringing the power of content and technology to individuals and business to unlock their growth. And along with her today, uh, we are blessed to have her sister. So we have two guests on the podcast today. Her sister, uh, Farida uh, Agami, who is a lawyer, entrepreneur, and governance expert, currently in uh, the general manager, is currently the general manager of the Tharawat Family Business Forum, the private network and knowledge hub for family-owned companies in the Middle East and North Africa. Both of their full bios are going to be in the show notes. 
definitely check them out. Um, super impressive. Um, and I'm excited to have uh, Ramia and Farida on the DealQuest podcast. Welcome. Thanks, Corey. Thanks for having us. Hi, Corey. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic, fantastic to have you both. You know, we were uh, uh, you know, talking in the, in, in the, in the pre-show about um, all of the things that you're involved in and, uh, uh, you know, uh, and content creation and, and family businesses and the fact that at least Rami and I are getting into Clubhouse and all these you know, wonderful uh, <laughs> combination things. Um, and, yeah. you know, and, and we'll talk about some of that, not all of that on, on the podcast here, but before we get into um, that and also, uh, you know, how um, uh, the types of deals that you get involved in and have seen, I want to take you both back to when you were growing up as uh, as little little girls and you were maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. Um, what did you want to be? Because, you know, with most of my guests, I say because I doubt it is whatever they're doing now because it almost never is. However, in your case, you know, it is a family business. So I'm sort of wondering whether you <laughs> did think you were going to be doing something along the lines uh, that you are now or whether it was so, something something totally different when you were little kids. I'm totally going to take my cue from my my uh, my big sister, Corey, because I'm really worried about saying something wrong. So Farida's <laughs> going to go first on this one. And then I'm going to take my censorship cue from her. And that's because that's how family businesses work. See, that's why I wanted her on the show. So she couldn't... Uh, hierarchy is everything. Hierarchy is everything. Like, you know, you have to respect the authority matrix here. So Absolutely. Farida, what did you want to be when you were growing up? <laughs> what, what, a, what a good question. I haven't thought about that in, for a very long time. I think for me, very early on, I was very interested in kind of societal questions. So I was a very nerdy, nerdy eight-year-old. Um, and my father, so our father, actually, I do. Thank you, you for know, sharing. Yes, him. yes. Appreciate um, it. Our father um, actually uh, has a very interesting career. But one of the things that he studied was archaeology. And uh, I've always wanted to be an archaeologist. And he, he used to take us on hikes where we would go to old digging sites and kind of, you know, see if there was something left or some shards from a Roman digging um, that, uh, that archaeologists would have left behind. So that kind of really inspired me. And of course, being half Egyptian, um, you know, our travels uh, to go see family in Cairo would also take us to some of these amazing cultural heritage sites uh, where then our dad would explain to us you know how to how to look at such an ancient site and understand how society would be working would have worked 5000 3000 years ago uh, so for me it was definitely archaeology and i think at some point i also was very interested in politics very early on as well you still uh, are and i'm I still am. a very political person <laughs> i'm a highly political person um, but so yeah i think those would be the two the two ideas that would come to mind for me great great and and ramia Gosh, you, you sound so like uh like like you're an eight-year-old who had it super together <laughs> <laughs> i probably had it more together than today so to be i actually i think i was <laughs> true that i wish to go back to that level of clarity i love Absolutely. it so um no i mean seriously though i think that i'm probably though so we're three we're three sisters right in the family business to be clear we just couldn't squeeze in another guest on your podcast probably <laughs> we felt that would be a bit much the three of us like it, it's kind of overwhelming so there's only two but we're three sisters and i think of the three of us i probably was the one who kind of always imagined working with dad mm -hmm. somehow. I think it was because I used to miss him a lot when he used to travel a lot when we were kids. And I just always imagined that if I could just 
carry one of those suitcases, even if it were empty, and put a big calculator inside, I could go with him. <laughs> and uh, I think it, it was like for me, um, later on I realized that probably was like sort of the entrepreneurial gene that was there mm -hmm. from the start. I, was, mm -hmm. I think I was never meant to do anything else but to build businesses and sort of like be an entrepreneur. I just I love it so much. But yeah, so I think like just that idea of like kind of working with dad or going on these travels with dad was for me was a very predominant motivation. And uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I, we opened several businesses as kids as well. So yes. my younger sister and I were very active eight-year-olds. Like we were, we had like uh, travel agencies. Mm -hmm. There was a detective, a detective agency. agency. Yeah. Detective agency, I, I mean, love it. Was, it was a very busy childhood, Corey. Like, you know, there was a lot of productivity going several on. Shops. Even, even that we could have actually known that this was going to turn into a family business in the end. Like all of that productivity. So. So yeah, so this this first segment should tell people a lot about our characters. Actually, yeah, the sister has it together, and then the other one has like no idea what she's gonna do. So yeah, cool. Next question, Corey. Let's I love it. No, I love no, I I love it. And, and just to give people some context, because uh, you know you mentioned that you're uh, half Egyptian. I know, mm -hmm. I know the other half is Dutch, right? Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, and yes. now you currently split time between the UAE and Switzerland. So get, get people yes. like uh, a little geographic grounding and where you grew up and <laughs> your background and where you are now and that kind of stuff. Well, you pretty much said it all. Um, so our father is Egyptian um, from Cairo and our mother is from close to Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Uh, they met in France uh, and then they um, went to live in Switzerland. So we were actually, all three of us were born and brought up in Switzerland um, and not in one of the fancy places like Zurich or Geneva, but really in proper rural Switzerland. Uh, and so Switzerland is really kind of our home. This is where we... we we belong to a certain extent. But then, of course, when you have these international roots, um, you know, the world is your oyster to a certain extent. Uh, so we all three studied in the UK um, at some point during our studies. Um, and yeah, then in 2008, we started living partially in the UAE and started building uh, two of our companies there, um, between there and Switzerland. And then, of course, Ramya got married, um, and her husband is from Pakistan. Absolute so that betrayal. We, we needed we needed to add we needed to add some Asian yeah, there wasn't uh, influence. Enough, uh, there wasn't yeah, enough there was not there. enough diversity. Corey, we just decided that my future children we want to confuse them so much. I, it's going to be fun watching them having massive identity crises. I think this this was just the goal for our own entertainment. For our own entertainment, confuse this is the future plans. children. Exactly. I got it. So so, so they, they they should be planning the therapy budget now right exactly this that's is, the trust fund that we established <laughs> <laughs> this is why we build wealth actually in anticipation of this issue yeah. so, oh i love it i love it citizens uh, of the world in short yes yeah, citizens yes. of the world uh, the other question i often ask uh, opening the podcast and you know you can you can take it in whatever order you would like i don't know if it was together or separate uh, but what would what would be the first deal of any type, whether it was something small when you were a kid or something you think about as an adult that, that comes to mind that you uh, that you did? That's an interesting question. I think for me, it probably would be when I was in, in the law firm. So um, I did my I did my bar exam in Switzerland and practiced law in Switzerland for a while. And um, I think, you know, Switzerland is an interesting country, uh, Corey. We are 
In a funny way, we are very entrepreneurial. I mean, we have a very strong middle class. Many of those people are either self-employed or, um, you know, have have their own businesses. So it's a very much um, an SME focused um, country. But would I say it's a deal friendly country? Probably Not less than really. the US. Yeah. So in terms of, you know, the way I would imagine that the word, word deal provokes something in, in a listener from the US, it's going to be very different for someone in Switzerland. So growing up, our father was a very traditional entrepreneur, you know, building his own business, um, you know, in a, in, a, in a quite a conservative industry as well. So there were no deals, I would say, per se, in our um, close family environment. Uh, so for me, the first exposure would be when would have been when I uh, started helping clients um, in, in several areas. But one of them would actually, funnily enough, was a family business um, here in the capital um, that was trying actually to get out of a deal. So that was my first experience with the deal. Yeah, so they had, it was a family business. They were third generation, very interesting. One of the uncles had had kind of set up a deal with a Russian company. And then the his nephew kind of came in at the literally at five to twelve, saw the details of the deal and and had to do anything he could to to stop this because it clearly was a very bad deal. So that's when we we as lawyers got invo involved and you know tried to support his narrative um, in terms of trying to warn the 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 uncle that this was going to go really really south. I've never actually thought of that before, you know, that mm -hmm. for you, so uh, Corey, just so you know, just so you, your pity for me, like, reaches its climax, like, both my sisters are attorneys, okay, like, just so you know, I'm in the oh, middle, wow. and it's really, a, <laughs> it's a scary, scary place to be, and uh, no, but, like, actually, I've never thought of it that way mm. until you mentioned that, but it's so interesting, because for you guys, like, deals are actually always associated with business isn't it like because it's like from deals there's so much business oh yeah of course lawyers, lawyer, right yeah, like yeah, i never even realized the connection but it's mm -hmm. true of course it's so yeah that's massive mm -hmm. because you almost always at some point you need legal legal support to a certain extent right so most probably yeah yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. interesting love it yeah and anything come to mind for you uh, ramya oh i think i've i've informally been making deals all my life <laughs> um <laughs> You know, I think when you're an entrepreneur, like, I think it's kind of part of the, it's part of the package, isn't it? Like, you know, you, um, because you start with nothing. So everything is, is a barter and negotiation and reaching agreements and making deals. And initially those deals, it's really interesting. I feel like in the beginning of a, of a company, when you start building a company, you usually end up bartering and, and making deals based on skills exchange. Mm -hmm. yes. And then they sort of like, you know, they grow in size and significance when there's the monetization side of it that comes into it. Um, so I think like, honestly, like the moment, <laughs> I think, I guess like you could say that the moment you decide to build a business or decide to run a business, yeah. you make a deal with yourself that it's part of your day to day really. And I would say like, um, <clears throat> It's been interesting for us because our work um, allows us. So I've interviewed hundreds of family businesses. Like we, we uh, Frida is the is the GM of a of probably like the largest network of family businesses in the Middle East today, and um, we get so much exchange and so many discussions with other family firms. And I, I feel like it's so interesting to see how the family business as a construct is actually, you know. It's, it's, a, it's a constant negotiation internally mm -hmm. and externally, mm -hmm. right? Yes. And family businesses yes. are known to be 
super embedded into their regional context. Like, you know, they're usually people who carry large, like really, really strong reputations, are very attractive, are, are magnetic almost for deal makers to find. Like mm -hmm. people always mm -hmm. want to make deals with family businesses because they're very attractive deal counterparts because usually yes. they're they're stable, they think mm -hmm. long term. Like, you know, there's that sense of, oh, if the family is involved, like, you know, there's there's skin in the game. So I think that, you know, we actually, we informally talk about this all the time. Of course. Don't we? Like, okay, you've you got a deal pushed your way. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Mm -hmm. Should we share the risk? Should we go mm -hmm. in together and stuff like that? So amongst family businesses, I think this is a fairly frequent discussion, actually, if For you sure. think about it. Yeah. 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 No question about it. And listen, I, I look at the family business itself as a deal because business partnerships, right? Yeah. And, you know, multi-owner yeah. companies, whether they're family or not, you know, there's a deal that needs to be made amongst owners, right? Even within a company. Um, so, you know, that that's a, you know, that's a fundamental deal. I, I want to hit on just a couple of what uh, I look at as, uh, you know, at least in my experiences, as sort of myths of family business. So we can get, you know, if anybody is sitting there with some things in their heads, I want to clear them a little bit. And then I want to get, you know, more specifically into, into some of the conversations of deals as they relate to, you know, family businesses and otherwise. Um, mm -hmm. So first of all, you know, you have used the word entrepreneur and termed yourself, you know, an entrepreneur within a family business. But some people who don't know it well, uh, they question that. Uh, you know, I, I uh, for many, many years was a, a member of Entrepreneurs Organization, president of New York chapter. I take it a couple of years off, but I'm probably going to come back. And, you know, it's an international organization with with uh, chapters all over the world. And one of the mm -hmm. differences that we see is most of the members in the U.S., are first generation entrepreneurs mm -hmm. or or if mm -hmm. their parents were entrepreneurs they're not in the family business they're you know whereas in for example the middle east in a lot of uh, of asia southeast asia even a lot of mm -hmm. latin and south america you know a lot of actually other parts of the world many of the members are second third generation family businesses and there was always mm -hmm. this question about oh are they entrepreneurs right because mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and i happen to know many of them and know that uh, in my mind, they are definitely entrepreneurs because it's not like they're in many cases. I mean, sometimes they are, but in most cases, I don't see them just coming in to a well-established business and, and being a manager and just operating that you business wish, as it existed. As, right, as it existed, you know, uh, you know uh, when, when their Let parents... Let the trauma you know, counseling begin. Right, right. So, yeah, so, so you want to speak to that? Because, you know, because I, I think that's a, that's a myth that, you know, sort of second or third generation family folks, are, you know, are not entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, but you, you tell me, you know, your experience, obviously, you know, you, you're, you swim in this world, you know, every day. Mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe, maybe we should make that distinction. I think there's a real technical distinction between talking about a family business, family enterprise and an enterprising family. Um, I mean, I think for both Farid and mm -hmm. I, it is inextricably linked when you talk about entrepreneurship and family business. I mean, entrepreneurship is not only the origin of any family business, but it's also usually the force that propels it forward. Like, you know, every generation, there's a saying that like every generation should treat its family business, however well established as a startup mm -hmm. and basically really, you know, like question everything, like, you know, rejuvenate, etc., and like put that energy in. Not that every generation needs a founder, but there's something to be said about that. And in our particular case, I think we really qualify as what you'd call sort of an enterprising family mm -hmm. because we've gone beyond sort of like just working in one business, right? Like we're not just like that one business that has our name above the door, that mm -hmm. one factory. 
Um, but we've gone into several different companies, building several different companies, all within the family ownership. It's all governed by the same family. Um, but that's why we, we're absolutely never afraid to use the word entrepreneurship because we understand that any, any endeavor starts with that impulse of the entrepreneur. Now, the beauty of, I think, being part of an enterprising family as opposed to really being solo is that there's the heritage uh, in the sense like you know, there's the history and you learn from the history of the past of the previous generations and you have the honestly you just have like the the moral and, and emotional support of the family around you and you have the rest of the family involved right yeah. like what did you what i mean you say? let me let me go out on a limb here i would i would even say that family business is an extreme version of entrepreneurship mm. it's like the extreme sport of entrepreneurship to a certain extent and i'll explain why on the one hand, you have extreme advantages, obviously, right? You might have already infrastructure set up. You might have um, resources at your disposal. Uh, you might have already a very strong goodwill with, with your stakeholders um, and a strong legacy that you can you know, build on going forward. But then you also have the downsides, right? That legacy can weigh enormously. It can be like one of my friends, a third generation family business member, once said, sometimes I feel like in, I inherited a, a, a backpack full of stones and yes. I'm trying to, you know, drag that around with me, being mm -hmm. very aware that mm -hmm. I cannot get rid of one of the stones mm -hmm. because they're all part of my legacy. Um, and so, you know, and, and then you have the, the reality of, for example, you know, people always referring to the to your predecessor as the one person that made it and the one oh, person the that ghost. was yeah the exactly ghost. the ghosts yeah. around the table. There's a Absolutely. huge field in family business that talks about you know what legacy does to a, a person taking over an existing business, and yet that the, both the positives and the negatives taken taken into account you are an entrepreneur because what you're essentially doing, you have to look at your resources and you have to apply you know, risk behavior in order to achieve growth. And I think ultimately the behavior is exactly the same. It just comes with a very different context. And that's why sometimes I do say that it's the bungee jumping of entrepreneurship yeah. um, because it is a bit more extreme, even though entrepreneurship by itself as a, as a normal uh, you know, concept is already difficult enough, but it adds a dimension that is emotional, that is um, unexpected. And, you know, talking about deals, uh, Corey, every single morning you enter your family business, it's a emotional negotiation with your family members. Yes. However good, however strong your relationship with yeah. each other, yeah. you are constantly negotiating. You yeah. are constantly yeah. adjusting behavior. You are constantly, you know, trying to figure out how to, um, you know, marry the the aspect of you having bonds that go beyond the workplace but also having to display professional behavior and, and having the opportunity to, for example, a big topic here is accountability. How can I tell my sister that I adore that, you know, have we've been through so much together? How can I tell her that, you know, she's accountable for something and point to her that perhaps she has not performed? This Feeling is like not, you're trying I'm not to tell me something. <laughs> Are you trying to say something? Wait, in front wait. of Corey, can this wait until tomorrow's 
briefing, please. Yeah. Well, there you go. Point so, in case, serious. Corey. Point in case. Yeah, yeah. Is, this, think, is this a hypothetical or are we having an interview? Yeah, like this is, she's no like passive, passive aggressively pointing fingers here. Like I, I will bring this up in the family council tomorrow, just so you know. So, but I think, I think it's such an interesting point you're raising. I do think like it's like the... You know how people say, like, you know, when you want to be successful in business, you have to leave your ego at the door. And in family business, mm -hmm. that's true. Plus, you have to leave your childhood pre pre mm -hmm. preconceptions at the door as well. There's a lot, actually, that you have you to leave at the, the door. door. <laughs> the door the door frame is, like, full of stuff that you have to leave there. And I think that's, um, and, that requir and that's a deal with yourself, basically, yes. that you have to reach. But I also, because the role, I mean, I'd love to hear also, Corey, like, you know, for me, like, one of the big topics... Um, that I like to connect with anything we think about is ego. Mm -hmm. And I think in deal making, that's also such a big thing, isn't it? And it's also a really big thing in family business. And I always feel like ego plays such a big role oh, yeah. in both these areas and how successful we can be, right? Like if, if that if that element is sort of in check and has its right place, then both these, both these things become much more successful. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, you know, it's interesting. I talk a lot about ego in my authentic negotiating book. And on how it's it's one of the top five reasons that negotiations mm -hmm. fail mm -hmm. is you know is is when ego gets involved you know so um, yeah. you know I, I definitely uh, believe that and it's interesting because everything you've talked about you know uh, you know and you mentioned some things you talked about family council you know, you know uh, I mean so number one the stakes are so much higher in family businesses mm -hmm. right because mm -hmm. it's not just if if the business falls apart or the business partnership falls apart or there's tension. It's not, it doesn't just affect the business, but it's hard not to have it come into the personal and the family relationship, Absolutely. right? Uh, and then, you know, so, so it makes it even more important. So I know, I know a subject that, uh, um, uh, that we discussed very briefly in the pre-interview, uh, but, uh, and, and you especially, I think, probably uh, to spend a lot of time in, which is, which is governance, mm -hmm. right? I mean, governance yes. is important in any company, but certainly in family businesses, I think it's even more important, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, if we if we look at, I always try to break governance down into its kind of what I see as its three constituting parts, uh, you know, which is your vision, where, what do you want to achieve, the roles that you have to assign to the people in your group or team or family in order to achieve that goal, and then accountability. So how do we make sure we measure performance? Now, if you break governance down to these three principles and you apply this to everything that you do, you know, it becomes very quickly apparent that in family firms, um, the layers of governance are are much more complex and the the complexity comes because of the family element uh, you know you have to i always give the non-family audiences at the example you know just a little kind of exercise to do um, i say you know if you imagine the most difficult professional situation you've ever been in in your life mm -hmm. take a moment to imagine that then imagine your the most difficult family relationship you have in your life at the moment and then you put those two together every single day of your professional life. Mm. So that's family business. And that's what makes it so extreme. That is what makes it so difficult because the, the emotional toll that certain family situations can take on you um, is, is, is much more than, than you would expect. And I have to say that governance, that's why governance in family firms is essential, but so difficult. 
um, everybody can do corporate governance. Everybody, it's you know, it's it's almost it's it's science, it's it's policy, it's regulated to a certain extent. There's legal implications that you can just follow. Um, and, you know, it's it's something that is pretty set in stone. When you look at your ownership. Ownership also has like a couple of legal, um, you know, implications, and and you can kind of follow some guidelines there, um, with of course a little bit of freedom to to arrange as you wish. But what is absolutely never organized is the family governance side. There are no laws that prescribe to you how to whether you should have a family council or not. You know, pretty much every corporate law will tell you that you need a board of directors in your company or that you are obliged to have a shareholders meeting once a year. Nobody tells a family firm that they need a council to discuss family matters. Mm. So if you leave mm. that to too, too late in your, in your family's history and you need to then play catch up, um, sometimes it actually is too hard for the family to get used to regulating their behavior as a family. So this is where I think governance has a lot of complexity. It makes it fascinating, but it is very, very complex. And it impacts hugely, right? Like on the ability to make decisions or to actually make deals outwardly. Then oh, absolutely. Because if you cannot come to that agreement yeah. internally, yeah. it'll defer everything. Like that misalignment internally will defer from your like it will defer your growth it will defer your ability to seize opportunities we've seen this last year with covid mm. um you know clearly mm -hmm. those families have thrived that have their decision making aligned mm -hmm. and that have mm -hmm. found some or that you know in, in your words Corey, that have struck some sort of a deal internally if you mm -hmm. will on how this is going to go down mm -hmm. and 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 that has eased their negotiation with like the uncertainty sure. that they've been faced with uh, last year, which we really can categorize as force majeure that has impacted absolutely everybody. And so I think that this is why I love it when you talk about the, the governance side of things, because I think it's this, this, this principle of having your house in order, mm -hmm. even at the most basic level. And in family businesses, we like to also like do a lot by handshake and by just like, you know, it's implied and stuff like mm -hmm. that. But when, when, it come, when push comes to shove, and especially when the family is actually seeking out bigger opportunities when you're after bigger deals when you want to like you know when you really mm -hmm. are ambitious mm -hmm. about your growth goals you cannot you cannot try that you cannot do that without facing the internal situation first right sure. like you cannot do that without having your house in order or at least you can't do it sustainably Absolutely. it's eventually going to crumble. i mean Absolutely. we've seen examples that actually became really big you're right but then mm -hmm. eventually crumbled because the house wasn't in order internally so i think it's yes. super important to connect it with the governance theme actually yeah mm -hmm. yes and, and let, let me let me talk about what could theoretically be you know an ultimate deal for a family business and and i i i, I will say i did um uh, listen to a little part of your uh, episode with our uh, Ramia, with our common friend Dove Barron on his podcast. Mm -hmm. We spoke about this a little bit, and I and I so agree with you. You know, this misperception, uh, you know, or this judgment that people have uh, when you know, uh, or you know that oh, family businesses don't make it through the third generation. You know, and 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 there is some mm -hmm. statistics about that. You know, no no mm -hmm. question. Mm -hmm. There's some there's some math on that, some stats on that, um, but. Um, as uh, as you know, as you pointed out on Dove's show, uh, you know that can happen for so many reasons, right? Sometimes family businesses mm -hmm. you know, don't quote unquote survive because maybe they sold, right? Or maybe Absolutely. and and the big point you made, which I love, was that how many businesses last that long? Even so, exactly. even if they do fall right. apart after three generations, <laughs> exactly. like they've accomplished so much more than anybody else. Uh, but I do want to talk about sort of that decision, and and you know I have a theory on this that 
um, you know, some people say, oh, you know, you get further away from the founder and or you have, you know, g- generations that are entitled and that's why these businesses fail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and listen, sometimes obviously you see examples of that, of you know, course. in some of situations. Course. But I also think part of it is just math in my mm-hmm. mind, yeah. uh, meaning mm-hmm. that most people have more than one child. So mm-hmm. every generation you go down, it becomes exponential in the number of people, mm-hmm. at least in, you know, who have beneficial ownership you know, interest in the company. And frankly, it just gets more complex, you know, and, and it's tougher for, exactly. for a company or a family business to support, you know, when it had to support the founder and their family, it's one thing. And then when it went to the next generation, which might be two or three kids and then their families, you know, now we've gotten exponential. You go to the next generation, you could be supporting, you know, 10 or 12 or 16, you know, families. And it just gets harder and harder for a business to, uh, you know, to, to support that, especially if it hasn't been entrepreneurial with the next generations in expanding it. Um, so ultimately, uh, you know, often there's a, it, it comes to a point at some point uh, in the family businesses, you know, whether it makes sense or whether you can maintain it. And sometimes there's differences of points of view and whether you should sell outside uh, mm-hmm. or, or maybe just bring in outside management and keep it, you know, uh, family owned mm-hmm. in, in whole or in part. Um, can you talk a little bit about, cause you deal with, you know, you've uh, personal family, uh, business mm-hmm. experience, but you also have interviewed and deal with hundreds of family businesses. What has your, your, your experience been in sort of the evaluation of that ultimate potential deal on whether you keep the business in the family mm-hmm. or whether you sell it or bring in outside capital or even just outside management? Mm-hmm. I, I think, I think it's a very interesting um point you make here and and it definitely is part of i would almost say a little bit the bad rap that uh, family businesses get uh, specifically young family business members right so w- when i say i work with family businesses and i speak to people who have nothing to do with family businesses um they right away imagine you know the 25 year old with a maserati you know cruising through london like that's kind of the image that people come up with right now i'm not saying that those don't exist and i'm not saying that that is not something that you know is is part of a reality but I mean, I don't have statistics, but I would say the large majority of next generation members, even from, you know, leading large corporations um, actually take are are very aware of the responsibility that they have. They are extremely, extremely aware that that it's as I said before, the you know, the backpack full of stones Um, and, you know, however glamorous their life might look from the outside there is a very clear responsibility that comes their way. Now, one thing that we always talk about in our association, which I think, you know, in, in Europe is done a bit better, but not very much in the, in, in, uh, in the Middle East, is the difference between, you know, succession planning for the management, for executives, for the entrepreneur, right? The person who has the entrepreneurial acumen, which also, in, a, in my opinion, is quite a matter of luck whether each generation has that Absolutely. one or two or three or four people who have that acumen that can you know have the skill set to to guide this family business forward so the difference between the success the su- successor in the executive role versus the successors on the ownership role. And I think there is a lot of work that needs to be done to to clarify for people that you might not necessarily be an entrepreneur by nature, and that is okay, even if you are born into an entrepreneurial family. Nobody can, can, you know, 
basically blame you for not being entrepreneurial. That is not something you can influence. Um, you know, there's nature versus nurture. There's this whole study of where does entrepreneurial behavior start. But I think you cannot blame an individual for perhaps not having the inclination to be an entrepreneur. But what you can do is explain to that person that, you know, you have been given this responsibility. You probably have benefited from being part of a family that has a well-run or, a, you know, a successful business. Now, as a family, we are going to do everything we can to shape you into a responsible, good owner. And that does doesn't have to be a full-time job, but it will always mean that as long as you want to benefit from this organization, you will have to give a certain input, a certain type of input. That input needs to have a quality. And what we are trying to advocate is that we make a very big distinction between ownership succession and, and executive succession or management yes. succession. Yes. And you know, if we do that properly, there are roles for everybody. I, I am of the opinion that you can educate pretty much anyone to become a good owner because it is a role that can, that has beautiful facets. It has a role, it's a role that can be extremely creative. It's a role that can be supportive, that can be, you know, um, even inspiring. And, and you can even, if you have entrepreneurial inclinations, you can even, you know, use those. But there has to be a very big distinction, specifically the moment you shift from the first to the second generation, because typically this is where, and I always try to, um, to explain to, to people who are in the succession moment, specifically from the single entrepreneur to their next generation, to the second generation. You have to imagine that that one person has fulfilled between five to 10 different roles for this organization to thrive. Right? They are the salesperson, they are the creative person, they are the people person, they are the, the, the leader, the visionary. It is very unlikely that you will have someone who can take over those 10 roles in, embodied in one person, right? Yes. That is very unlikely. So as a founder, you need to be aware that there will be not one person who can probably take it over. So that you have to establish through governance a system whereby those some of those aspects that you have taken over or that you have naturally you know created for yourself being taken over by a system and then the next generation can come in with their own unique skill sets which is which you know they inherently have um, and then start using those to create a new value for the company so this is a little bit how i see that that challenge that you described yeah yeah thank you i think that's that's great insight Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. Um, I want to I want to shift us um, to a, another area of deals that we see with with families, um, and that is, you know, I, uh, as as I've mentioned uh, to you, and as my audience knows, I, you know, I have this uh, sort of niche where I do a lot of work with uh, people in financial services, wealth management, and that includes family offices. Uh, you know. Uh, which uh, becoming more prevalent here in the U.S. and are certainly prevalent uh, around the world. Um, and in those family offices, uh, sometimes what uh, those offices are doing is investing uh, 
in other people's companies, right? Not just mm-hmm. in the family, mm-hmm. uh, you know, business. And sometimes the, gener- the multi-generational wealth, um, you know, gets managed through those family offices. And of course, you know, they invest in various ways, but, but one of the ways is, you know, is doing deals. And I know you all have some, you know, uh, exposure and experience with that. So uh, talk to us about what you're seeing there. Mm-hmm. Should I take it? <laughs> so I think what's interesting in the family office field, first of all, I, I try to always clarify that for us in, in Europe and in the Middle East, I, I wouldn't exclude the UK a little bit because I think the UK and the US have had quite similar developments when it came to family family offices. But, um, you know, the family office concept is very Anglo-Saxon, and I think it arrived a little bit later to continental Europe and is actually just arriving, I would say, over the past, has been arriving over the past 10, you know, decades probably in the Middle East. So it's interesting for us, you know, from an academic perspective to observe how that model of a, you know, private wealth management a structure is now starting to be implemented around the world, um, and it has it has kind of <laughs> quite different. It look it starts looking very different, and and I like that because I think you know the the early family offices outside of the U.S. really tried to replicate the the typical U.S. model, which is you know first generation entrepreneur, exponential growth, um, exit probably still within the first generation, perhaps at the latest second generation, and then the management of those assets uh, long-term. Now, in Europe and in the Middle East, it's it's kind of different. We are still very much in the, you know, operational family business field. So yes. owners are still very much operational. Now, what we see, however, is that there definitely is this tendency that operating owners, whilst they still are executives in their companies, are starting to establish family offices. Now, these family offices, literally, I've seen everything from there is an extra accountant sitting in the, in the accountant's pool, and he's kind of the family office, all the way to a super sophisticated professional setup. So we see kind of an evolution of, of that structure. And I think what I find very, very interesting is that, of course, those family offices are starting to display similar behaviors with regards to you know, investment strategies, they have their portfolio set up, they have their um, asset allocation, you know, nicely balanced. Very often, if I look at the Middle East, for example, with its volatility, geographical diversification is really, really important. So there's all these topics. But what I see now is that in, in the next generation, in the younger generation of these still operational family businesses, so we, we still haven't exited those, we're still managing factories and, and you know, trading businesses. But we are now seeing a generation that says, hang on a second, I'm going to take my dividends and I'm going to actually set up a little investment office of my own. And I think the the attraction of or the, you know, the I would call it attraction of VC specifically of VC investing has done a lot for those next generations to look at investment as on the one hand, an opportunity to kind of realize their own, you know, vision of where the world is going and and the companies they would like to be involved with. But now we also see a sort of corporate VC behavior where family businesses are starting to realize our innovation pace is too slow. So how I'm going to innovate is through um, investment, direct investments in startups. So these are two developments that that are fairly recent. And I think what's really interesting about the recent or more recent emergence, basically, of the of the single family office, mm-hmm. let's be mm-hmm. very clear, of the single family office in like, you know, Middle East, 
Southeast Asia, Asia, and we just did a, a special collection on family offices in, in Darwin magazine um, that was published mm -hmm. last week. And we, we combined, a pers uh, like it was interesting, we did interviews with people from the US, uh, Europe, uh, Iraq, and mm -hmm. uh, and India. Mm -hmm. And so it was really interesting to see everyone's take on this. And one of the most interesting interviews we did was actually with uh, Jay Rupani from India, who explained also about the mindset shift mm -hmm. from a family business or an enterprising family towards like decision making in the family office, right? Like, so what you have to learn mm -hmm. that distinction between when you are making business operational decisions mm -hmm. and when you are making wealth management Invest decisions, decisions, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. such a big shift, such <laughs> yeah. a, and he, and he was being very, it was a lovely entry. I really recommend everyone read it because he's being so candid about like, you know, yeah. the, how, you know, as an entrepreneur, you come in with those expectations. You're used to just like getting on with things and just doing these things. And like, and then wealth management is such a different mm -hmm. activity. And I think, and the types of deals that are open to you mm -hmm. via the family office are very different than the types of deals that are open to you via an operating business. Of course. So I think there's a huge cultural shift. And I actually think that this is also one of those situations where I actually do not necessarily think that the family member who is the best executive for the operating business necessarily would make the best family office. Yes. Absolutely. No, you know? of course. I really 100%. think that those are, yeah, yeah. those are two They're very different skill sets, sets, different temperaments. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. So I feel like, and I always feel like that's kind of like, it's interesting. Creating a family office, interestingly, also like really opens up a whole, as you said, involving the next generation. It opens up a whole host of new potential roles for family Absolutely. members, which I think is amazing, right? Like, because, you know, family offices are also known to be like, usually a lot of families first foray into structured philanthropy, which a lot of next gens are super um, excited about, right? Like, yes. and they would never operate in whatever business is still operating, basically. Mm -hmm. They would never be interested in that industry, but they love what they can do via the family office. And just to, to your point before as well, Corey, I just wanted to mention that because we all know I went on a rant on on the <laughs> Dov's podcast. Actually, two. Like he's just mentioning one. He's being nice about it. So, <laughs> and, Dov, and Dov lets me rant, which is why I love him so much. So, um, so basically, uh, <laughs> so I went on this rant about the like you know, the longevity discussion as well. And I think this is actually interesting because for me it links very much with the family office, right? Mm -hmm. Like so, it's just the fact that a lot of people have this misconception that the longer a family business exists and is established, that somehow they automatically become stronger, things should be becoming easier. But as Frida explained, you have to understand how many factors change on average around the business just in the scope of 10 years. That's not even half a generation. Yes. That's why so many businesses fail Absolutely. after 10 years, right? Like Absolutely. most of them fail after, well, gosh, most of them don't even make it out of the startup phase, let alone last like 60, 70 years. I think the reason why family businesses got a, get a bad rap actually for that, like get judged more for like, you know, failing and then the next gen gets failed, gets sort of like um, blamed and, mm -hmm. you know, that whole entitlement discussion, mm -hmm. whether true or not, comes forth, is actually because the outside world really loves the family business. And actually the outside world sort of society really loves family wealth and family businesses because it, it inspires them there's a sense of stability but they right? also like love family associated. drama they also love family I mean, drama there's but a I telenovela think aspect of uh, there's you know, and it is so much drama i mean our yeah. family's like a, like a <laughs> you walk into a soap opera every day like fantastic or we should sell the rights to it it's fantastic but i think i think you know like um i just think it's very like i'm very 
very passionate about this because you cannot romanticize this, right? Like no. this is, it's no. business. We also don't walk around constantly thinking of ourselves as family offices or family businesses. We're, we're, we're entrepreneurs, we're wealth managers. We are what we are, we do our work. But I think, and I think what's what's important to understand is especially in this current context, I feel like I'm, I'm a big advocate of telling every family that we encounter and they tell us as well, look, especially in these circumstances that we're facing right now, like, you know, where a lot of things will change and have changed absolutely forever. You should feel comfortable to make the choices that you need to make without feeling that this is failure or without feeling that this is like, you know, you letting previous generations down because that's nonsense. Every generation needs to make the best possible decisions within the context that is given it. Sure. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, and I think yes. that's a super important message to send out there because this nostalgia ultimately leads to the family being ruined entirely, mm. even though maybe as you know, Corey, probably making a better, like there could be a better deal out there than waiting for total ruin because you couldn't make, you know, you couldn't figure it out basically. So that's what I'm very yeah, passionate it, about putting out there. It, no question. And listen, you know, think about, I mean, there's a few things that I paralleled, you know, that you said, um, Ramia, uh, that, you know, you look at non-family businesses, right? First of all, um, you know, people judge family businesses, but Look at some of the top companies and whether you want to talk about in the, you know, in the S&P index, public companies, mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, many of them weren't around 25 years ago. Forget three <laughs> generations ago. Right. That's and, you know, crazy. people moving out. So, you know, so even at that level, non-public companies, finance companies, whatever. I mean, you know, you look at, you know, whatever, Apple, you know, Google, Microsoft, mm -hmm. Tesla, whatever. These are, you know, I mean, and the corresponding companies that, you know, whether it's, you know, who knows, U.S. Steel or whatever it is, you know, mm -hmm. who have moved, you know, who have moved out. So, you know, it's interesting. You don't hear that kind of judgment, you know, for those kind of companies. Mm -hmm. That's number one. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, um, you know, the other thing is sort of, you know, going back to the family office discussion, I, you know, I'm interested in this international perspective because I think it's a great distinction that it is, um more common, although obviously not, you know, 100% on either side, but more common mm -hmm. in the U.S. for uh, families when they when they have an exit, you know, to then mm -hmm. take that uh, money and create a, a, a family office and invest that. Uh, whereas, you know, in a lot of other parts of the world, there's, you know, the families are still operating. Um, mm -hmm. How does that in fact uh, affect what what they're investing in? Because although it's not always the case, I find many family offices in the U.S end up because they have sold their business in a particular industry, that's the industry they know. And they will mm -hmm. often invest in that industry or in adjacent businesses to that industry because that's mm -hmm. where their expertise is. Mm -hmm. But obviously, if you're still mm -hmm. running an operating company, there are times when that would make sense to invest in adjacent or whatever, but also you're not going to invest in directly. Or, or, I shouldn't say that. Sometimes it makes sense, but very often there's at least considerations uh, on whether you would invest in any kind of competitive company, right? So uh, do you see these family offices in you know the Middle East, in Europe, et cetera, UK, wherever it is, uh, investing, you know, looking to branch out and diversify much more, or are they, uh, you know, investing in areas adjacent to their core businesses, or is it a mix? Well, it's very difficult to say. It's a very interesting question. I'm actually quite fascinated by this question. Um, and it's something that I feel, specifically in the Middle East and even Europe, I feel we're missing a little bit of data. Uh, we're actually missing a lot of data, um, you know, that really starts giving us a proper you know, image of, of the investment behavior of family offices. I'm talking of, obviously of single family offices um, yes. uh, or even, you know, just individuals coming from family business backgrounds that are 
investing their private wealth, perhaps not even you know instrumentalized or, or through a vehicle. Um, so it's it's very interesting to see how. On the one hand, people seem to be extremely opportunistic um, and, you know, really looking at uh, what's flying, um, where's the best uh, deal of the moment. Um, people are networking as well. And you have to see that in the Middle East, obviously, your network has always been, you know, your that that was the the main asset that you would have yes. it's it's an it's a society that is extremely dependent on personal relationships trust um you know um long-term trust right so we, we we transfer relationships um across generations so i think that's very important to to understand but now obviously with a fast moving society that we have today uh, sometimes those traditional behavioral patterns cannot be applied anymore. So what we see in, in investment is a very opportunistic behavior. Um, it's, you know, I happen to know, I happen to have access to a deal. I happen, happen to have access to an opportunity and I'll just go for it because it just makes mathematical sense, right? The risk is, yes. is fine. The, the, the returns are fine. I, this makes sense for me. Then you have the people who are, um, a little bit more strategic and they indeed you've basically mentioned it already on the one hand you have people who say I need to diversify away from my core business um, I need to make sure that I don't have my private assets exposed to the same cycles as my core business uh, and that's why I'm going into a completely different direction so I would say that's that's one way of, 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 of investing. The other way is the one that you've mentioned too, which is I know, let's say shipping. My family has been in shipping for 80 years. We live shipping, we breathe shipping. So if I'm going to invest and I want to know that I know where I'm, you know, how successful I can be in, 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 in a certain asset class, I'm actually going to stick to anything related to shipping because that's what I know. Um, now, I think what's going to happen is that we'll probably see with family businesses that have um, that still have existing family of uh, operating businesses we're going to kind of see a split we're going to see a hybrid behavior on the one hand i would imagine that we will see a, a lot more of corporate investments corporate vcs uh, that are going to come up whereby these operating businesses, as I said just before, are going to diversify and innovate through direct investments in startups within their industry. Yes. But then I would say that the private, on the private side, on the family office side, I think that we are going to see more of a diversification, um, both, by the way, geographical and uh, sector-wise. So it might also be that they say, okay, I'm not going to invest in shipping, for example, in Norway, because I'm a Norwegian family business. I've always been in shipping in Norway, but actually I'm going to invest in shipping in Africa because yeah. it's geographically diversified. So I am going to not be exposed to the same um, risk patterns. So this is how I would kind of, in short, summarize the trends that I I see, but I would love to see more research on this because I think this is going to be extremely important going forward. And it is changing the entire um, business landscape and the entire landscape of, you know, how SMEs or, or small businesses and startups are able to thrive or not. So I think especially in the Middle East, the allocation of private wealth is actually a huge driver for economic growth if it's done in a smart way. 
Yeah, and it's interesting because obviously, you know, one of the difficulties in getting that kind of data is that, you know, these are privately held, you yeah, know, family, absolutely. you know, there's not a lot absolutely. of public data on it. And, and you know, although obviously um, folks like you have a huge reach into this, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what I find obviously is that some of these uh, or many of these uh, family offices are, are, you know, intentionally private, you know, in terms of, uh, of what they're doing. Of so course. they, you know, they yeah, don't want to share yeah. information for various reasons. So yeah, it's hard to, hard to get data on it, but, you know, but at least anecdotally, it sounds like, yeah, I mean, we're seeing some of the same things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So listen, uh, you know, um, Farida, uh, Ramya, I could, I could speak to you all for hours. <laughs> and, and, Let's go to Clubhouse, Corey. Let's take this exactly, to Clubhouse. Exactly, exactly. We could do a 24-hour room. In, uh, 24-hour deal um, room. But, uh, but, you know, in terms of a podcast, all good things need to come to an end. So uh, in that regard, uh, my second to last question is, um, if people want to find out more about, uh, you know, you, your companies, your publications, your, you know, all this stuff you do in family office all the content you put out what's the best place for them to go to find out more so uh we i mean uh first of all thanks so much for having us here like we, we love your platform we love this topic as well and we love finding overlapping like ideas with the family business space it's so mm -hmm. it's so interesting to challenge it every time from a different perspective so thanks a lot for having us here i think the best Absolutely. way to engage with us and and our content is probably the you know to to go check out our magazine uh which is on Tarawat-magazine.com, um, and we also have a very nice niche publication which is dedicated to women. Another topic that I could rant on, Corey here, like you know, it's called <laughs> women in womeninfamilybusiness.org, which has a nice podcast too. Um, we also have the uh, so the forum that I mentioned. So Frida's uh, sort of, that Frida's the GM of this is a big network of family businesses in the Middle East. It can be found at tarawat.org. And uh, so, yeah, so I think those are mostly for in relation to the family business mm -hmm. theme. Those are really our big, uh, our big portals. We have various others, but I think it will, it'll take too long to mention. <laughs> but also like, you know, just hit us up, obviously, like, you know, we're, we're, we're on LinkedIn, we're on all social media as well. And we love having conversations with people. So please like, you know, just connect with us via LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn is best. And, um, and, and that's a, that's a really good way to get in touch with us and see what, because we constantly are sharing content. So mm -hmm. I think like, yeah, it's a good feed to, uh, to, to follow basically to understand more about the work that we do. Yeah. Great. And we're going to have a, you know, a number of those links in the, in the show notes folks. So if you're driving or whatever, you didn't get that, don't worry about it. Just check out the show notes. You'll be able to, um, you know, uh, get access to the great content that, uh, uh, Farida and Rami uh, uh, and their, and their, uh, various, uh, you know, uh, outlets and, and companies are putting out. <laughs> um, uh, all right. So my final question of the podcast and I, uh, love each of you to answer this uh is freedom is my single highest i value and ideal in life and for me that means everything from freedom from all people around the world from oppression and discrimination and uh to uh the reason i'm an entrepreneur and i run my own business and uh uh you know uh so what does freedom mean to you in your life and business and and um uh, uh you know yes yeah, so just what what does freedom mean to each of you in, in your lives and business Oh, that's a, that's a, this is a final question. This you're asking me this at the end of a podcast. <laughs> you seriously? You don't know Farida at all, do you, Corey? At all, Corey. <laughs> this is the beginning okay. of a two-hour podcast. You need to keep podcast. it under sixty seconds. This all is right, what so, he means when he right. says it's a last question. Last okay, question. so he you, need, you need to cut to the chase. You need to condense hours of discussion into a few sentences. <laughs> condense it. You can do it. You can. Okay. Do it. Okay. Let me think about this. I. I the, 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 one thing that probably comes to mind 
like at the f first moment is kind of the the right or the possibility to seize opportunities um, and I think that for me really represents pretty much the core of how I see freedom because yes. what that means is it means I have tools at my disposal, I have an environment that allows me to see opportunities, I have an environment that allows me to be part of a group or, you know, a, a movement that seizes that opportunity. And, you know, I mean, again, this is a two hour conversation at least, but th there's a lot of detailed chain reactions that position me as an individual in the in the situation to be able to take an opportunity. Um, and, and I think, you know, we can talk about education, we can talk about discrimination, we can talk about so many different factors that would hinder a person to be in a position to seize opportunities. Um, so I think probably, yeah, if, I, if you force me to boil it down, then I think it's that. Thank you. And in a Robert? similar vein, I would say, and much shorter, <laughs> because I'm not as eloquent as you are. <laughs> um, in a shorter way, I would say probably similarly. Um, freedom to me is to receive the kind of respect that allows me to unlock my full potential without being worried that I am I will be punished for it or persecuted for it, basically. I think that's the mm -hmm. ultimate freedom. Mm -hmm. is exactly. uh, The ultimate freedom lies in respect, really. Love it. Love it. I so appreciate having both of you on the Deal Quest <laughs> podcast. You've, you know, just uh, the perspective you've brought and, uh, and uh, you know, this will, although this conversation cannot continue on the podcast, we, our conversations will continue. Absolutely. Thanks so much, and Corey, thank you so much for having us, having us Corey. Great pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Deal Quest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, Go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.